Um, or if you're more into movies like I am, what about the 2009 Star Trek remake? Um, the Enterprise is travelling through space and all of a sudden this enemy spacecraft comes out of nowhere. Guns are going off, explosions are everywhere and Captain Kirk assumes responsibility for the Enterprise. But he realises that he's outgunned. He can't match this enemy spaceship. So he makes a call and he evacuates everyone on evacuation pods to escape. But, but, to give the evacuation pods a chance to escape, he has to sacrifice himself and fly the Enterprise into the enemy ship to give them a chance. If that's not dramatic enough, one of the people on the evacuation pods is his wife, who gives birth as all this is happening. And so as she is travelling this way in the evacuation pods, and hence he is flying this way into the enemy ship, um, they get to speak for the very last time. And with tears running down their face, they name their newborn son, James Tiberius Kirk. That is how you do an introduction. Um, So when you look down at Matthew chapter 1, you just kind of go, Maddie, where are the explosions? Um, Where's Mr. Darcy? Um, It just feels like you've given us this list of names. It doesn't feel like the gripping introduction to a book, let alone the entire New Testament. And yet as we slow down this morning and have a look at these names, we'll see that this is no ordinary introduction. Uh, Matthew has crafted these words very particularly. He's included some names and he's excluded others. And it's my prayer that we'll see that this is actually the perfect introduction to his book as well as the New Testament. So come with me to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of of Abraham. Um, what does Matthew want you to know first? He wants you to know, if you want to know Jesus, you need to know two people, David and Abraham. Does anyone know how many unique names are in the Bible? If you want to take a guess, how many, how many would you guess? Shout out a number. A thousand. Seventy. There's over 2,000 unique names in the Bible, and yet Matthew says David and Abraham. Why does he say David and Abraham? And well, if you're familiar with the history in the Bible, you'll know that God made promises to David and Abraham that were very significant. Um, To Abraham, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, he said, Abraham, I'm going to use you to become my special nation, and through you, the whole world will be blessed. And 14 generations later, to King David, he said, David, in your line of kings, I'm going to choose a king whose kingdom will reign forever. And so from the very outset of this gospel, Matthew wants, to know that, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is a big deal. Jesus has come in the line of Abraham and in the line of David. This is no small introduction. And that's why if you look down at your Bible, 
Um, Abraham headlines a chunk of names from verse 2, and King David headlines a chunk of names from verse 6. And it's through these two people and their descendants that the Lord Jesus comes into the world. Now, um, from what we know, there's some names which we don't actually have much information about. So, for example, verse 3, there are these guys like Perez and Zerah and Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon. The Old Testament gives us about one line of these guys. Um, Salmon, again, I was trying to think of a funny joke about Salmon, and I thought about this for way too long, and I came up with nothing. Um, So just pretend there's a joke about Salmon in there somewhere. But again, we don't know much about him, but we do know that he and the others are in the line of Abraham, the promised nation. Matthew has been very intentional with these names. Um, When it comes to King David in verse 6, you notice that Matthew doesn't just call him David, he calls him David the king. And that's because David represents a very important shift in the history of Israel. Um, Has anyone here watched the Netflix show The Crown? Yeah, excellent TV show. It documents the beginning of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. And one of the striking things you get to see is how the Queen becomes the singular, most important, most revered figure in the entire nation. And in a similar way, King David represents a new period in Israel's history where God chose kings to be the central figure to bring about his promise of an eternal ruler. And so again, if you look down from verse 6 onwards after David, Matthew lists king after king after king. Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Jehoshaphat, and it keeps going. And by connecting Jesus to this list, Matthew is saying, Jesus, he's not just part of Israel, but he is the Christ, the very king that God chose to reign forever. Where previous kings had failed, Jesus had succeeded. This is no small introduction. Matthew, how big a deal are you saying Jesus is? Matthew's answer is, he's a very big deal. He is the Christ who blesses the whole world and is the chosen king to rule for all eternity. That is one heck of an introduction. But believe it or not, it gets better. As the TV says, but wait, there's more. Um, If you stare at the list of names a little bit longer you'll realise that there are some names which are a bit strange. There are some names which don't seem to fit in with the others. Um, I actually did some digging in my own family tree, like Ray, and it probably doesn't surprise you that most of my relatives and descendants were in some form of accounting or finance. Uh, It's just in my DNA. And so if someone in my family tree did, say, an arts degree, then we need to stop and ask the question, what on earth is going on? 
The same thing happens with genealogies in the Bible. And one of the hot tips that I was given a while ago when reading genealogies is where is there a variation in the list? Where is there a name that stands out from the others? Why don't you spend 30 seconds talking to the person next to you and see if you can spot some variations or names that don't seem to fit in with the rest. All right, I'm going to need your interaction for this one. So does anyone want to be brave and share a, maybe a variation that you spotted in the genealogy? Who wants to kick us off? Rahab. Rahab. Okay, so John said Rahab. Rahab, why did you say Rahab? Stand out. Yeah, okay, so we know that Rahab was, yep, so very dubious profession. She was a prostitute. Yep. Yep. Um, yep, anyone else spot any names that are a bit strange? Yeah. Uh, yes, Bruce. Yep. That's a bit odd. Like sometimes you'll, you have name, 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 and then you've all of a sudden got the wife of Uriah. That's a bit odd. Yep. Uh, anyone else? Is that all the variations we've got? Yeah, Tamar. Why Tamar? Did you pick? Yeah, <laughs> interesting is an understatement. Yeah, Tamar was very. We'll get to her in a second. Um, anyone else? Any other variations that you picked up? Yeah, who said that? Yes, Justin. Why did you pick up on Ruth? Sorry, not pick up on. Sorry, why did you um, mention Ruth? Yeah, disjoints. Why? Why? Why the disjoint though? Relation. Yep. Yep. So we don't know, maybe her kind of backgrounds, a bit different to the others. Yeah, all right, so I picked up at least four variations in the list, but for this morning, for your own concentration's sake, we'll just look at two. Um, the first one is indeed the one which a number of people have mentioned, and it is this list of five women, including Mary, listed in this genealogy. Now, there's been a whole bunch of kind of metaphorical blood spill over why they actually are included in this list. Some people say it's because they're women and genealogies traditionally in the Jewish sense didn't include women. Um, But actually some of the names like Tamar get included in genealogies in the Old Testament. So I don't think that's what's going on. Um, Other people say that these women were all very, um, very, very sinful people. So they did very overtly sinful things. So Rahab was a prostitute. Tamar had just horrible, incestuous relationships within her family. Um, But again, if you actually go back and read their stories, the women are often um, more righteous or captured as more righteous in their stories than the people around them. So I don't think that's what's going on either. The final one... um, people suggest is that they are Gentiles. That is, they weren't originally in the line of Israel, so they were outside the promised nation. Now, I think that's the most likely, or more likely, but again, we're not 100% sure about some of the backgrounds of these women. So we know that Ruth and Rahab were Gentiles, but we're less certain about Tamar and the wife of Uriah, who we know is Bathsheba. Um, so I think a more helpful way to think about it is, to, is that these women show that God often works in very unconventional ways and through some very different people. 
I mean, Rahab sold her body for money, and yet God chose to bring his promises through her. The wife of Uriah was caught up in a sexual scandal with King David, and yet God chose to bring his promises through her. Um, I suspect that some of us here may sometimes feel like we don't fit the mould of people who go to church. Um, Maybe you feel like you don't fit into a particular group, or maybe you feel like you think or you express your emotions like other, differently to other people at church. Or maybe you feel like you're a bit of a fraud because there are sins within your heart that no one else is aware of but you. I hope you can see that in this genealogy, God's grace has been at work through a variety of people and often some scandalous situations. So if you feel like you're someone who doesn't quite fit in here at church, or you feel like your sin is too heavy, um, in Jesus, the Christ, God's grace is sufficient. And if you belong to Jesus, then you belong here in God's family. And so that's the reason and that's the lesson I think these four women teach us. God often works through some very unconventional ways. The other um, variation, which is not very obvious at first, but someone pointed it out to me, was actually something that happens at the start of verse 12. So what happens at the start of verse 12, or even the end of verse 11, is you get this event that's mentioned called the deportation to Babylon, otherwise known as the exile. Now, why is that weird? Well... Why would you include um, something like the exile in this very significant genealogy? If you know anything about the exile, it was the lowest point in Israel's history. Um, Israel had rejected God, and so God banished them from their homeland. He took them away from the temple and away from his presence. Why would you include such a miserable event in a genealogy as important as Matthew 1? Well, I think the answer lies in the fact that Israel was unable to achieve the promises of God on their own. Their rejection of God, and indeed our own rejection of God, shows that humanity needed God to intervene and to send someone to fulfil the promises that Israel could not do by themselves. And so you'll notice that in the final third chunk of names after the deportation of Israel, at that um, kind of just kind of lists out names connected to the exile, at the end of that chunk in verse 16, Matthew finishes with Jesus, who is called Christ. He is the one who can redeem Israel from their sin. And after the hopelessness, after the misery of the exile, Jesus is the only one who can fulfil the promises in a way that Israel was unable to do themselves. Um, Do you start to see how much is packed into this introduction? And we've only just scratched the surface, but I hope you see that these names have been very carefully chosen. Like Pride and Prejudice, it's beautifully crafted, some selected, some excluded. Um, Like Star Trek, there are stories that are explosive. 
And at either end of this genealogy is Jesus the Christ, the fulfilment of God's promise of blessing to the world and life everlasting. This, friends, is no small introduction. It is the perfect introduction to Matthew's letter and indeed the entire New Testament. So as we start Matthew's Gospel together, I just want to draw out two ways in which this genealogy should transform our life. Firstly, this genealogy should inspire our appreciation for history. Now put up your hand if you love history. Okay, more than I thought, more than I thought. For me, history class was where I perfected the art of sleeping with my eyes open. And I suspect that for some people, history can feel a little bit dull. But if by faith you have come into the family of Jesus, then this history here in Matthew chapter 1 is our own history. You don't need to spend $30 to Ancestry.com to get your family tree. You can get it for free right here, Matthew chapter 1. Um, other people say the Old Testament, oh, it's very like irrelevant, it's very over here. But again, if by faith we come into the family of God, then the Old Testament history is our own history. It's where we have come from. So can I encourage you this week to open up the Old Testament and make an effort to find out where you, if you belong to Jesus, have come from. So that's the first thing. The second way that this genealogy should transform us is that it should force us to make a decision about following Jesus. Generation after generation after generation couldn't find the fulfilment of God's promises. And yet in Jesus, God says, this is my chosen king who I will bring about blessing to the world and real relationship with him. Um, So if you have never committed your life to following Christ, why would you not come and meet God's chosen king who can give you eternal life and blessing? Um, Or maybe for you it's not so much about a first commitment, it's more of a recommitment. Um, You've realised that you've been putting other priorities above serving Jesus. And this genealogy reminds you that there is no greater love than serving God's crucified, risen King. And so can I encourage you this morning, if it's a commitment for the first time, or a recommitment again, come to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God has chosen as his King to bless your life. Let's pray together.